for Radio Catskill, this is Rosie Starr. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk report says Venus and the Moon are getting close together. Along the Poets Row, Christine San Jose has her eyes on November. I share a bit of my conversation with Shannon Borelli from Springbrook Farm. Joseph Johnson interviews Rachel Morrow on the subject of Eastern Coyotes. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country, after news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. In northern Gaza, Palestinians are reporting more than a dozen people were killed today in a strike on a U.N.-run school, which had been a shelter for refugees. The Gaza Ministry of Health says 15 people died. The Biden administration says Hamas has delayed the evacuation of foreigners in Gaza because the group demanded its injured fighters be among those allowed to leave the territory. As NPR's Greg Myrie tells us, Hamas ultimately dropped its demand. The evacuation of thousands of foreigners from Gaza, including hundreds of Americans, is now in its fourth day. The process is still moving slowly and comes after weeks of sensitive negotiations. A Biden administration official, speaking on condition of anonymity, said Hamas significantly delayed the process with one of its demands. The group wanted its wounded fighters to be among those sent to neighboring Egypt for treatment. The other parties involved in the talks rejected this, especially Egypt, the U.S. official said. Hamas eventually relented. Hundreds of foreigners have left Gaza in the past few days, as well as dozens of injured Palestinians who are not linked to Hamas. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. President Biden is calling for a brief halt in the fighting to address a worsening humanitarian crisis in Gaza, even as Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu is resisting pressure for a humanitarian pause, insisting there would be no temporary ceasefire until the roughly 240 hostages held by Hamas are released. The U.S. Supreme Court agreed Friday to hear a second major gun case this term. At issue is a Trump-era ban on bump stocks. Those are devices that the ATF says convert semi-automatic weapons into machine guns by firing multiple rounds with a single pull of the trigger. NPR's Nina Totenberg has more. The Trump administration reclassified bump stocks as illegal devices after a mass shooting at a music festival in Las Vegas in which the shooter used bump stocks on 14 guns to kill 60 people. After a review of the devices, the ATF reclassified bump stocks as machine guns. Machine guns have been illegal under federal law since 1934. The reclassification rule went into effect in 2019 after the Supreme Court declined to review it. But in January of this year, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals disagreed with three other appeals courts that have upheld the rule. The government appealed to the high court, and gun rights advocates also asked the justices to hear the case in light of the high court's sweeping gun rights decision last year. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. In northwestern Nepal, at least 157 people died. After a strong earthquake struck late yesterday, dozens more were injured. Rescuers are searching mountainous villages. This is NPR News.
Welcome back to Farming Country. I'm your host, Rosie Starr. On today's show, Christine San Jose has her eyes on November as she narrates along the Poets Row. I share a bit of my conversation with Shannon Borelli from Springbrook Farm. She enjoys hunting on her property in Abramsville, Pennsylvania. Joseph Johnson interviews Rachel Morrow from the Vance Scott Reserve on the subject of Eastern Coyotes. But first, here is Keith Hubbard's Star Talk Report. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farming Country. country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. In the pre-dawn hours of Thursday, the moon and Venus will be very close to each other in the eastern sky. Both heavenly bodies will rise a little before 3 a.m., and by 5 a.m., they will be high enough in the sky to be easily seen. This will leave about one hour before the glow of the rising sun will begin to brighten the sky. The moon and Venus will be approximately one and a half degrees apart, which is the width of your index finger held at arm's length. It will be a worthwhile sight to see the two brightest objects in the night sky so close together. The waning crescent moon will be lit on the bottom, making it bowl-like in appearance. Through binoculars or a telescope, the craters that lie along the line separating the lighted side of the moon from the darkened side will stand out in sharp relief. Venus will be unmistakable just above and to the right of the moon, If you have a telescope, train it on Venus next. Venus currently appears to be half-lighted like a third-quarter moon. With the moon and Venus being next to each other, the difference in brightness between the two will really stand out. While Venus will be shining at a magnitude negative 4.3, the moon will be a very bright negative 8.1. The brightness scale is logarithmic rather than linear, which means the moon will be 33 times as bright as Venus. Venture out before dawn on Thursday to see the moon and Venus separated by one and a half degrees. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. open along the poet's row today. A great reminder from the Philippine poet José García Villa, inexplicacy of birth has given me God's eyes, miracle against earth that my soul defies. Ah, look into my eyes and see God's very potency. See the power and the glow, the ultimate yes or no, tremble on the verge of my human eyes. God's lens through which I see all of love and die of his immortal suspense.
And we have a longtime student and disciple of his, our own Mort Malkin. And Mort says, Last of November, the woods are barren, trees unadorned, rock forms showing only patches of lichen, monochrome at best. A time for unseen change as the trees begin hibernation. Cold months of coping, lessons of wintertime. And for another look at November, from Dawn Watkins in South Carolina to Lyle on the occasion of his 70th birthday. Is it the green of spring you miss, of timothy and clover growing? And is the green of early leaf the only hue worth knowing? How better is the emerald green of laurel and cedar bough? That's constant year by year, untouched by season or the plough. Spring greens are sweet, but soft. They quickly come and fade. But not a hundred years of snow can rob the pines of jade. Don't think that winter has no joys, no beauties like the May. Remember with what dignity hemlocks gaze upon the day. This has been Christine San Jose along the Poets Row for Farm and Country. Here is a slice of my conversation with Shannon Borelli from Springbrook Farm. I spoke with her in 2022 when I interviewed her and her husband Jacob Borelli about their farm where they raise beef cows and pigs in Damascus, Pennsylvania. Shannon, you mentioned that you have hunted when you were younger. Do you still hunt now on your land? Yes, yes. I am a pretty avid deer hunter. I will hunt with my bow, a rifle. I do a little bit of black powder. I did more black powder in Massachusetts. The seasons are a little bit different. So yeah, and I'll take the kids out on the blind with me. Had a nice, crazy afternoon with them and missed a deer, but you know, took the kids out and had a good time. So yeah. How about anything else like coyotes or what else is around here to hunt? We do a little bit of turkey hunting. We do a little bit of turkey. We haven't gotten into too much predator hunting. I, you know, I mean, if we see a coyote and we can try to go get a shot off at it, we will. But we don't actively hunt coyotes. More so for me, it's mostly deer because I like to eat what I harvest. So, Thanksgiving dinner, do you get the turkey? I try to eat venison for Thanksgiving, honestly. That's, okay. that's usually my goal. Is we, do some, we hunt up in Vermont as well. So my grandfather starting up hunting up there in 1953 or so. So we have a long-standing relationship up there that we'd like to continue. I think we're on, what, the fourth generation, I think, something like that, fifth generation so that's kind of a cool thing are you plagued with any predators here coyotes do they come on the land we don't see a lot of coyotes on our farm directly so the donkeys that we have the purpose for the donkeys is they deter coyotes and they will kill coyotes so they protect our herd the calves and the cows and all the things because they'll take care of the the coyotes how does a donkey kill a coyote they'll kick them bite them 
That is impressive. This meek, mild-mannered animal. I know, he's probably our most mild-mannered animal that we have, the two of them. For WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Rosie Starr in Abramsville. I'm Joe Johnson for Radio Catskill. If you live in the WJFF listening area, you know this sound. Whatever your opinion of them, coyotes are a fact of life here in the Catskills and northeast Pennsylvania. Nearly extinct throughout most of the eastern United States for many years, coyotes have made a huge comeback since the 1970s. Currently, it's estimated that New York State is home to between 30 and 40,000 coyotes. With me to discuss the eastern coyote today is Rachel Morrow from the Delaware Highlands Conservancy. Welcome, Rachel. Well, thanks for having me, Joe. Could you tell us a little bit about the Delaware Highlands Conservancy and your role there? Yes. Yeah, so the Delaware Highlands Conservancy is a nonprofit land trust um, working on both sides of the Delaware River in Pennsylvania and New York. Um, we work with landowners to conserve their land in perpetuity, um, meaning forever, with the tool called a conservation easement. This means that no matter who owns their land in the future, it'll be protected from subdivision and development, but can still function as a working farm or forest. I'm the education and volunteer coordinator. I bring the why into the organization by leading educational programs and bringing in experts of uh, to talk about land conservation. I also recruit and lead volunteers and advise them of ways that they can help the conservancy, whether that be maintenance around our office or tabling at various festivals or helping the Eagle Watch program in January, February. We're always looking for volunteers and would love for anybody interested to join us. And I can attest to the Eagle program. I've done it for a couple of years now, and it's really, really interesting. It's public education, outreach to people, and it's amazing when a person sees an eagle flying for the first time that they've never seen. It's, it's pretty cool. And now you're based out of the Van Scott Nature Reserve down in Beach Lake, Pennsylvania. Tell us a little bit about the Van Scott. Yeah, so the Van Scott Nature Reserve, um, we acquired the property a couple of years ago from the Van Scott family. We have 144 acres there with about three miles of hiking trail. It's open from sunrise to sunset. Um, anybody can be on the grounds during that time, even if our office isn't open. So it's a really great place to come out and uh, take a hike. It is, and I can attest to that, too. I love hiking up to the top of it, up by the quarry up there. The view up there is just amazing. There's no mountains. There's no nothing. There's just horizon all the way around. So many of our listeners have probably heard coyotes, you know, especially at night, but I'll bet very few of them have actually seen them. Can you describe the eastern coyote to us? Yeah, so coyotes, um, they can be found in every state except Hawaii. They're about the size of a border collie. They have a fluffy exterior, um, which can make them seem bigger than what they actually are. Um, some people would compare them to a German shepherd, but border collie being smaller is a more accurate representation. Their coat is going to be a brownish gray color with some dark brown modeling to it. And they can also have color variations in their coats, so they can be from blacks to reds to blondes, but that brownish gray really being the main coat color that they have. When you see one, they'll have pointed ears and their tails will be in a rested position against its back long legs, which is a difference between a dog, because when a dog's tail is at a resting position, it's at some sort of angle, typically. But a coyote's tail usually rests along the backside of its legs. 
The thing that always strikes me about coyotes when I see them in the forest or, or see them on the road is the, the variation in color because, mm-hmm. yes, the, many of them are that light kind of brown mottled color. But I have seen very, very dark ones, and I've seen some really, really light ones too. Now, I understand that the eastern coyote is considered to be a subspecies and different from the western coyote, that typical coyote that we remember from old cowboy movies. How are they different? For starters, um, the eastern coyote is a lot larger than their western counterparts. Um, This is because the eastern coyotes are actually a hybrid between wolves and western coyotes. Some research has been done on this, and the percentages are that about 64% is actual coyote, and then about 26% of wolf, and then 10% is actually dog, most likely from feral dogs that were in the area. This is due to wolves being removed from the northeastern states. Um, As their populations dwindled down, it allowed for uh, coyotes to come over. And then the wolves not having breeding partners, they would um, breed with the coyotes creating this hybrid. And then eventually wolves were hunted out of the area completely. So we no longer have wolves in the northeastern states. And we have what is now the hybrid of the eastern coyote. So as the wolves were eliminated by hunting and other means, the coyotes kind of came in and filled that niche that the wolf uh, had taken. Yes, exactly. Hmm, okay. Now, many people will fear the coyote because they have pets and farm animals that they, they think might be in danger. Is that a real issue? What's the diet of a coyote really like? Yeah, so let's just start off with their natural wild diet. So coyotes, they're classified as carnivores, um, even though they do follow a somewhat omnivorous diet. They're scavengers, so they'll eat what's known as carrion, which is animal remains or dead animal matter. They will also eat small mammals such as mice, squirrels, chipmunks, rabbits. Um, that's predominantly what they like to go for, but they will also eat small birds and and bird eggs. When it comes to coyotes and livestock, as farmers know, they can be an issue, but not to the extent that people make them out to be these great monsters. But if they see a chicken or a domestic rabbit, for instance, that is prey to them, right? So you want to make sure that you are protecting your livestock as best you can. So one of the ways you can do that is if you have chickens and you have them enclosed in a cage properly, meaning you dig under and having the cage run under the ground as well and having a top covering and making sure that your animals aren't out around dusk throughout the night and first thing in the morning because that's when coyotes are most active. So you don't want to have that conflict of your livestock along with whenever the coyotes are super active. And then I'll go into dogs and cats. Um, so a lot of people think that coyotes will purposefully make friends with your dog to lure them for food back to their pack. Um, what they're probably seeing here is a misinterpretation of instinctual behavior. So the coyote, it might be playing with your dog or it passes your dog and the dog isn't done playing with that coyote or wants to chase that coyote in any certain way. It'll go after the coyote. The coyote instinctively goes back to its pack where this dog just interrupted a bunch of sleeping coyotes, for instance, and they see that dog as a threat and then it meets that unfortunate fate. With cats, when you put your cat outside, you are putting your animal into the ecosystem and taking that risk. And coyotes, they can't tell the difference between what's a wild animal and what is a domestic animal. So so it's all food to them. So it's all food to them, yeah. 
So once you let your cat out unsupervised, you have little to no control what's going to happen um, to it, unfortunately. So I guess the bottom line here would be just common sense precautions. Um, don't let your animals out at night. Keep your livestock, you know, well penned. Um, I have chickens and I've had a, a couple of issues with coyotes trying to get into the pen, but I, I built the pen strong enough. I, I think we, we've never had a problem. I think that most people know that coyotes run in family packs. What can you tell us about the life cycle or the, the daily life of a coyote? Yeah, so a coyote pack, it usually consists of an alpha male and an alpha female. And there will be about three to six helper coyotes um, that will help the alpha male and female raise the pups. And those helper coyotes are pups that they've had in previous years. Whenever the pups are born, there's about four to seven of them, um, but they don't really have a high survival rate. So only about one to three will survive. Then around October, once the coyote pups reach about six months old, they may disperse or they may stay at the family pack for a couple more years. This is also when your helper coyotes might decide that they want to go and seek out to start a family pack on their own. It all depends on the individual coyotes. Typically, though, females will stay with the family longer than the males, simply because females don't start breeding until about their second winter. So when does the breeding season for coyotes uh, happen? Uh, so typically, the breeding season runs January through March. One really neat thing about coyotes as well is they are monogamous. So the alpha male and the alpha female are the only two that are breeding within the family pack, and they are very true to one another. Research has been done in other monogamous species, and some monogamous species will breed with others if they have the opportunity to do so. But it's shown that coyotes, once they have that mate, they are pretty committed to the other one. I'm speaking with Rachel Morrow from the Delaware Highlands Conservancy, and we're chatting about the eastern coyote. There seems to be a lot of misconceptions regarding coyotes. Are, are there any that you'd like to address? Well, one of the misconceptions that I would like to address is the fact that they're sometimes called coy wolves. Um, we were talking about that hybridization earlier. Coy wolf, not so much a term that is 100% true. Koi wolf makes it seem like they are a 50-50 genetic split. And like I had mentioned earlier, that there's much more coyote in them than wolves. And because of that, people often think that they're these really aggressive monsters that are going to come and hunt you down at any point in time that they can. And that's just not true. They're very skittish. They hide and are very elusive to the point where even in cities, you can see them and you can see them and never know that they are there. So they've been seen in Los Angeles, Chicago, New York. Yeah. I, I saw an article saying that there were even coyotes in New York City. Yeah, right in the middle of the city. Um, and if you think about it, the one of the main food sources for them are rodents, right? And cities are filled with rodents. <laughs> this is true. Anything else that you'd like to talk about with the, the misconceptions? Now, I've heard the term coy dog. Is that a um, something that we should talk about? Koi dog is kind of runs alongside the same vein as koi wolf. Um, it gives that misconception of half 
coyote, half dog, but there's only about 10% dog in them. Not necessarily the worst thing you could say or label them as, but it does leave some misconceptions in people's minds when you use that terminology. Mm, I see. So we talked about some common sense precautions. How can our listeners learn to coexist Mm. with the coyotes and avoid any problems? Yeah, so the best way to coexist with coyotes is to be a deterrent. Make sure you aren't feeding the coyotes both intentionally or unintentionally. Um, Unintentionally is the one that people don't often think about. Um, This can be attracting them through bird seed, fallen fruit, pet food. And while the coyote might not be directly attracted to the bird seed or fallen fruit, that kind of material attracts things like the rodents and squirrels and chipmunks, which then the coyote is going to want to come and eat. Then you want to make sure you secure things like your garbage and compost and your recycling, because they will get into that if they smell something yummy, even if it doesn't smell yummy to us. Remove any water sources if you can or make it more difficult for them to get to it because all animals need water. And if it finds you as a water source, it might come in onto your property. And then don't leave your pets unsupervised is another really big thing just to make sure that there is no small animal attractants for them. And no matter what your opinion is on coyotes, the best thing you can do for them in general is just keeping them fearful of humans because if you don't like them, if they're fearful of humans, they're not going to come around. But if you do like them and they're not fearful and there happens to be a coyote that associates, let's say, a human with food and they start to not get the food that they desire, they might have some sort of conflict that would be bad for both the human and the coyote involved. So they're going to be looking for that source of food. Yeah. What if coyotes are posing a problem? What if you've taken all of these precautions, you're locking your pets up, you're you're keeping the food, you're et cetera, et cetera. Where can our listeners turn for help if they're having a problem with coyotes? If you're having an issue with coyotes, my suggestion would be to contact your local wildlife authorities. So if you are in New York, um, calling New York's DEC or Department of Environmental Conservation, or if you're in Pennsylvania, getting a hold of the Pennsylvania Game Commission. Um, and then if you see a coyote that is hurt, they may lead you or you could research whoever your local wildlife rehabilitation center is. Anything else that you feel our listeners should know about the Eastern Coyote? I think that coyotes get a bad rap and that we should look more into helping them and realizing that predators are an important part of the ecosystem. Sure, that they definitely have a role to play. Thanks for being with us today, Rachel. I've been speaking with Rachel Morrow from the Delaware Highlands Conservancy about the Eastern Coyote. This is Joe Johnson for Radio Catskill. Thank you, Joseph and Rachel, for that wonderful conversation about eastern coyotes. I did have a special experience last year in Margaretville, staying at an old country inn and experiencing the sound of Catskill coyotes in the middle of the night. We 
hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard, Christine San Jose, and Joseph Johnson. Special thanks goes to our guests, Shannon Borelli from Springbrook Farm in Abramsville, Pennsylvania, and Rachel Morrow from the Vance Scott Reserve at the Delaware Highlands Conservancy in Beach Lake, Pennsylvania. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farm and Country and supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Listen on air at 90.5 FM on your phone or smart speaker or online at wjffradio.org. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org this is Kusar Grace KG, right here in the place to be, WJFF Radio Catskills Music Emporium, Tuesday night, 7 to 9. Two hours of great music, jazz, funk, blues. I've got mellow grooves that help you unwind, exciting rhythms that help you cut loose. Join me Tuesday night for the Music Emporium, 7 to 9, right here on Radio Catskills. Listen local. This music can reach further.